Anyway, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be back with you. I've been here a number of times, and I was supposed to be here about a month ago, but then, as many of you are aware, Maggie fell and broke four ribs, and it made travel back and forth a little bit difficult for us, and uh, your pastor, Eric, was very uh, kind to say, hey, I'll get you off the hook on that one. But Maggie's here. We made it. Six weeks later, and the ribs healed, and... Um, we, we do appreciate your prayers for us, and especially for her during this time. So I was a pastor uh, actively serving for 35 years, and every once in a while I, was, I would be pleasantly surprised when somebody would come up to me and make a comment or speak about something that I had preached about last week or maybe a month ago or several months ago, and it's like, whoa, there's something going on there. But I think for the most part, uh, most of us are like, um, how many of you remember what was preached last Sunday? I'm going to put Eric on the spot. Well, I, won't, I won't do that, okay? But, um, you know, the, from time to time that might happen, but usually it's, it's hard to remember back to that. How many of you remember what you had for breakfast this morning? Okay, so I'm not going to ask you if you remember what I preached about when I was with you January the 1st of this year, just a year ago. We, start, we started the year together on, on the 1st of January, and um, we kicked that off, and now here I am at the end of the year to kind of wrap up the year with you. And so rather than asking you if anybody remembers what I preached about on January the 1st, I'll just go on and refresh your memories, okay? We took a look at several passages of Scripture out of the book of Genesis. One of those was the one that was just read a few minutes ago. And we used that as the building blocks, if you will, the foundation for a biblical worldview of how we could go into 2023, with our eyes open, and as we look at and as we experience things going on in the world around us, how we can put that into a biblical context and really try to make sense out of that. You know, the world has its way of, of trying to understand things that is not getting us much of anywhere. And so we need to look at things as Christians through a biblical perspective, and many of you may have already known that before I was with you on January the 1st, but it really breaks down into three pieces. You know what these are? Creation, fall, and then redemption. And we find those right there in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So in chapters 1 and 2, we have the story of the creation and how God created the world and everything in it, and we as human beings were the crowning achievement of his creation, and God blessed it and saw that it was good, in fact, that it was very good. And we have some of the description of that in the text that was read a few minutes ago. But then Genesis chapter 3 comes along, and Satan comes to Eve first, and then by extension to Adam, tempts them, and causes them to disobey God. And his tempting comes in the form of a question. Did God really say, don't eat of that fruit? And through that, sin came into the world, and it's what we call the fall from God's good creation into a state now where the world is fallen, and boy, there are just all kinds of evidences of the fallenness of the world in our own lives 
the brokenness and the challenges that we have, as well as what we see in moral confusion in the world around us, and wars. Oh, the wars that are going on right now, and, and what we see what's going on in, in Ukraine, and especially in Gaza, is, is, is just heartbreaking. And that's all in this fallen world that we're in. And the ultimate result of the fallenness of the world is what each of us faces, ultimately, with our own deaths. And Satan is continuing, even today, with that tactic. Did God really say, da 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 fill in the blanks, causing confusion in that way. But also from the earliest days, God has been at work in the work of redemption of bringing his people back to himself and restoring us. And that started with the sacrifice of animals whose death would then, our, our sin could be transferred to those animals, and then through their death, then our sin would be removed. And it leads ultimately to the coming of Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, who dies on the cross for our sins. And that other text that we read from John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that it is through Him then that we have forgiveness of sins, and we are brought back, we are reconciled to God, we can recover from our brokenness, and we can pursue God's holy will. And so there we have creation, fall, and redemption, the keys to understanding the world around us. But there is still a lot of confusion in the world, and it even creeps into the church when we fail to fully grasp and understand and look through those lens. And so there is one final step, ultimately, and some would say this is an extension of redemption, but I would say it's, it's also very different. The final step that God is at work doing, and that is the work of restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration. That God is working not just to redeem us to himself, but to restore and to recreate his good and perfect creation. And so it's only appropriate, I think, on this last day of the year that we see how the story ends. We started with the beginning and get all the way to that. And so um, think back to the beginning as we read this text. This was a long introduction, right? And I have a sermon to go with this. But it's important that we have this building block to, to build on, to go on to. So I want to go to our text in Revelation chapter 21. And um, I'm going to read from the New International Version. I'm not sure what, what it is printed in. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, this is <clears throat> your holy word that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we pray now that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you speaking to us and that you, you would use the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you, if you are able, to stand with me in honor of God's word as we now read from Revelation chapter 21. Listen to the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. My friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I have to, I have to be honest with you. Uh, reading and, and preaching out of Revelation is always a bit of a challenge. I think there are a lot of pastors who like to try to avoid or stay away from Revelation. It's tough and it's easy to get bogged down when we read the book of Revelation on things like, you know, the visions and angels and seals and horses and plagues and numbers and time frames and all of that. And many have tried to figure out what all that really is and um, often have been proven wrong. They haven't gotten it right. And, and the point is that there's a lot of mystery in those things. And I think it misses the point, the ultimate point of what Revelation really is about. And the truth is that God is at work in his own way and in his own time working things out. And we may not know the particulars of all that, but what we do know is this. When it comes about, it's going to be amazing and wonderful and beyond human description that we can ever even imagine. You know, in our limited human minds and capacity, we can only see so much and understand so much. And there have been people who have tried to write and say, oh, this is what it really looks like. But we can only see so much with our limited brains. And so... And so it was with John as he sees these visions and tries to share those with his people. We can only see in ways that we are capable of seeing and understanding. And it's only just a glimpse, a small picture of what the whole thing really is all about. And so at the risk of going uh, where we can't see clearly, 
Um, I want to just reflect some in our limited time this morning on some of what we might see in what John is saying and um, with our limited understanding, understand too that when it really does happen, it's going to be beyond what we can even imagine here. And I'm not going to say that, well, this is how it is because many have tried to do that and it's wrong, but rather I just want to kind of stir our thoughts a little bit, maybe get us to thinking and maybe look at some things a little bit differently and maybe stretch ourselves a little bit in this. There are books and books and books written. I'm not going to do all that, but just some things here. You know, John sees, has this vision of New Jerusalem coming down. And we often, most often think of heaven as somewhere up there, right? You know, and Scripture speaks of God reigning on high and in the highest heaven and all of that. And so it's easy for us to start thinking that heaven is somewhere on the clouds or even higher up on the, you know, above the clouds and where there's an eternal church service going on and, and, uh, and more than just harps playing, but, you know, guitars and drums. <laughs> Who knows what? But, you know, someplace way up there. And, um, you know, it's true that there is that idea of up there. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, you know, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, you know, there is that sense. But maybe John gets us looking a little bit differently, too, and how that is. You know, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of the creation and God making this world and his assessment at the end of that that it was not just good, but, but very good. And that creation was in the form of the garden, a place where his people could live and work and grow and multiply and have fellowship with God. It was a blessed place, including the work of caring for that garden. But then in Isaiah 65, we read, God says, Behold, I will create new heavens, and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And John, in this text, sees a new heaven and a new earth coming. And so how might that look compared to the garden? You know, John sees it as a great city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much rather live in a garden-type setting than in a city. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who intentionally choose to live in a place like New York City or Chicago or Atlanta or someplace like that. And um, eh, not me, not me. I don't care even if the, if the streets were paved with gold. I would not want to live in New York City. All right. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Maggie and I had to do some errands into, into downtown Pittsburgh and we drove through several neighborhoods and things like that. And Boy, when we got back out to Beaver County, it was like, oh, we, can, we can breathe again. You know, we just would not want to live there. And you all live even further from the city than we do. And um, I'm sure that's, you know, you, you like it in that sense. But if we look a little bit deeper at what this image would mean for John's first century readers, it might change a little bit of that. He sees the city coming down. And in that context, at that time, a city was a place of security and safety and significance. The walls of a city, unless you lived in Jericho, the walls of a city were what protected you 
from all the other stuff outside. And sure, living outside the walls might be okay, you know, in the idyllic nature of things and being close to the ground and seeing the mountains and all of that. There was, you know, some attractiveness to that. But it was also a very dangerous place to live. Pretty tenuous, you know. You never really knew what was going to happen. There would be bandits, dangerous travel on the roads, and all kinds of things and unknown things that could happen. But the city, the city was the place of safety and security. And John sees that that coming down to us. Could it be that at the end of time, when sin is gone, the God's new heaven and earth is this kind of setting? Did I miss something? One, two, three, four. No, I'm all right. Okay. It's been a long week. You know, I mean, we pray, and we just prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That something here is for us. God created the perfect garden. And he created a place of security and safety for us. You know? And that's what he has for us. And whether if we think of it way up there or rebuilt right here, that's what he has. Can he not restore that garden sense? I mean, even in the picture in chapter 22, he sees the tree producing fruit every month. And it's still there. That garden picture. Keeping, keeping the good of that, you know, forget the bad part that we don't like, that is not that attractive to us about that city. But it's a glorious, glorious place. And so, in some ways, that recreation is like the original. But then again, it's also very different. Consider, for example, what we read about the light sources and the sources of light. In Genesis, God created the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night, right? And so you had sun, there was day, and then moon, there was night, and then a new day after that. And that's, that's what would distinguish night from day. And that pattern then is filled into our own bodies. That most of us, unless you're working night turn, in the day, we're awake, but then at night, when it's dark, we need our sleep so that we can be refreshed and renewed and move on to that. But twice in our text, it says that there is no night there. There's no night. There's no sun. The glory of God is the light source, and that doesn't fade at all. You know, in Psalm 121, it says, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is always awake. And if we have been created in the image of God, who never slumbers nor sleeps, and we're going to be in a place where there's no light, no night, what would that look like? I mean, you know, not only will we not need um, tissues and, and um, uh, toothbrushes and um, band-aids and all of that, but we're not going to need a pot of coffee every morning to get us awake and keep us going, right? 
never sleeping, never slumbering. And not only is there no more sleep, but there are other things that are no more in that final picture. It starts off saying there's no more sea. Now, there are many ways that we can look at and, and interpret what the sea is. But so often in Scripture, the sea is a place of chaos to stay away from. Now, I think many of us, if not all of us, you know, the sea has an attraction to it. How many of you go to the, go to the beach, you know, for, for vacation or been on a cruise out on the ocean and those kinds of things? It, it's, it's not a frightening thing. But to the, to the first century believers and to the Jews, especially steeped in Scripture, the sea was a place to fear. In Genesis chapter 1, before creation even begins, there are the waters that represent the chaos before God comes into that and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and, and out of that then comes creation. And in Revelation chapter 13, the beast, that epitome of evil, comes up out of the water, out of the sea and creates havoc. And so the sea is a place of chaos and a source of evil. But in what John sees at the time of restoration and completeness, it's gone. It is no more. And now there's a place of peace and security. And then, even more significantly, what we have, the words that are read often read at funerals, and we, were taught, we, we heard those in the children's sermon this morning, where he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And, and I've used those words often at funerals, and I've, I'm sure Eric has too. And it's, a way, it's, it's comforting when we're facing a loss and, and we have that hope of a place where those things are gone, and it's comforting in that way. And we often feel those, the tears in the morning at a time of loss, but there's so many other ways too that the tears come in. I mean, just look at the world around us. You know, are, are, are there things that, that break your heart? Well, we were watching some of the stories on news the other night, and we were just crying when we saw what's going on. Bring tears to our eyes and sadness to our heart. I mean, there's so much in this world that causes grief and mourning or pain, whether that's something that's close to you or general grief over all the world. And John says, that's gone. It's gone. And I've often found myself wondering then, and this may get a little off track, about how that applies to what we feel and say at a time of loss, especially of a loved one. Because so often, you know, we, we take on those conversations, oh, I know that they're gone up and now they're watching me and there's that sense of their presence with us. And, and, and that, that, that can, be, can be helpful, but at the same time, I wonder, I have to wonder, and, and, and I want to think, you know, personally about my parents who've gone. In fact, it was 19 years ago today that my dad's funeral took place, okay? So it's kind of been a week. And if they look down on some of the things I've done since they've been gone, I'd be, I bet they would be crying <laughs> and, and looking at this world. And, and because there is so much still to cry over, but no tears, but... Certainly we can take, take comfort 
in a sense of that continual presence of those loved ones and who they are and what they mean. But, but can we claim something even bigger and greater? And, and exactly how that plays out, I, I really don't know, but maybe that's a place that we can think about and be stretched on. But the greatest promise that we have in this is the promise of the presence of God that is overwhelming and all-consuming. says, The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Its temple. And anybody in that day familiar with Jerusalem and the temple would know that the temple and the mount and the temple mount at the center of Jerusalem dominated the city. You could not go anywhere without being aware of the temple and looking at that way. It was central to everything and dominated that. But now John sees the new Jerusalem and there is a temple that is the focus and it dominates. But the temple is not that temple made with hands. But the temple is God Himself and with His Son, the Lamb. It's all about Him. That's the focus. I mean, part of our, our thinking in terms of, you know, at the end and when we're all together and there, there are going to be those reunions and, and um, you know, I'll see my, and there are people that I look forward to seeing again, my, my, you know, my parents. And, and I, I wouldn't mind sitting down and having conversations with Abraham and Moses and maybe John Calvin and Billy Graham and people like that. You know, that, that's all there's something to think about. But how much more? is the overwhelming presence of God that shines and is the bright light and is the temple that dominates all of our attention. The temple is at the center. The presence of God and Jesus. So I don't know if, I, if I've raised more questions in your minds with this. Um, you know, and our call as Christians is to be faithful in our study of Scripture and to test the truth and to meditate on that and to pursue the truth. And, and we're not going to get it perfectly in this life. I mean, we're not God. I think I did preach a sermon here one time that, you know, God says, you know, I'm God and you're not, okay? And we need to keep that in mind that we are limited in that way. However, what we can do is look confidently to that future, to God who has always been, always will be, and that we will know for all eternity. And we have that sure hope. We have that promise of restoration because of Jesus. You know, the final words we can look at and sometimes you say, well, I know how it ends. God wins, right? You say that? And that's, that's kind of a cute way to, to look at the end of the Bible. But here is how the Bible really ends. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's live in the promise and the hope of God's ultimate restoration that is ours through Jesus. To Him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a great God who, in your great power, created a good and a perfect world. 
And yet, there is sin in this world through the deception of Satan. And we live with that in this fallen world. And yet, you did not abandon us. That you have continued to work in this fallen and broken world, and especially through your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have redemption. And Father, we thank you for that ultimate promise of restoration where all will be right again and you will be king and reign forever and ever and ever and we will reign with you. We give you thanks, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.